0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, GPS signals can now lead you to the entrance to Underhill, which turns out to be three miles to the east of Stonehenge in an old rat mulm yard frequented by terriers and ferrets yuck us we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane senior editor, Tony Daniel, suffering from a bit of a cold this time. And this time we talk with Michael Z. Williamson all about the history, evolution, and future of body armor. From the cuirass to the mail shirt to the Kevlar helmet, Mike brings his soldiers' and historians' knowledge to bear on a very cool and sometimes under-discussed subject. Our talk is based on an article that Michael Z. Williamson just did for the Bain.com website that is called The Evolution of Body Armor. And it's up right now on the Bain main page and will be available afterwards in the free ebook, um, Free Nonfiction 2019, which you can download at Bain eBooks. So that uh, really cool talk with Michael Z. Williamson is coming up, and we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, Bain Books is proud to announce that the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award for 2019 goes to Matt McHugh. Matt McHugh is a writer from New Jersey, and he's won the Grand Prize for the 2019 Memorial Award Competition with his short story called Burners. The Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Contest has been held annually since 2007 and is focused on the stories of space exploration and discovery with an optimistic spin on those activities. First runner-up in this year's contest is Acid Test by Gustavo Bondoni of Buenos Aires argentina and the second runner-up is dangerous orbit by mt wrighton of los alamos new mexico so an international and national cast um to our winners this year judges for the award were the editors of bain books including yours truly stories were judged anonymously we didn't know the names when we were reading the stories The Jim Bain Memorial Award will be presented June 8, 2019 in a ceremony at the annual International Space Development Conference. This year it's going to be held in Arlington, Virginia. That is such a cool trip that we editors here at Bain get um, basically every few years as we rotate it between us. The winner, Matt McHugh receives a distinctive award and professional publication of the story at the website in June 2019. And by professional publication of the story, that means we pay our writers the going rate. The contest occurs annually and looks for stories that demonstrate the positive aspects of space exploration and discovery. Over the years, the contest has developed an international character, in addition to the United States, entrants have hailed from Sweden, the United Kingdom, Austria, Canada, Algeria, Spain, and Morocco, now Argentina. This is what William Ledbetter, our contest administrator, says. Moon bases, Mars colonies, orbital habitats, space elevators, asteroid mining, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, realistic spacecraft, heroic sacrifice, and adventure. That's what we're looking for. And once again, we believe we've found writers and an ultimate winner who delivered just that. So congratulations to Mark McHugh, and we'll hand him a trophy at the 2019 ISDC in May. And even better, we'll publish his most excellent story burners in June at Bain.com.
2: Want to welcome Michael Z. Williamson back to the podcast. Hey Mike, how's it going? Quite well. Michael Z. Williamson is retired military, having served 25 years in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force. He was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom and Desert Fox. Mike is a uh, state-ranked competitive shooter in combat rifle and combat pistol. He has consulted on military matters, weapons, and disaster preparedness for Discovery Channel and Outdoor Channel Productions, editor-at-large for Survival Blog, which has uh, 300,000 weekly readers. In addition, Mike Tessin reviews firearms and gears for manufacturers. His books set in the Freehold universe include Freehold, Better to Beg Forgiveness, Do Unto Others, uh, When Diplomacy Fails. Um, what was the last one called? Angel Eyes. Um, that's that's the mainline Freehold, not the rebel Creek, yeah, because um, it's about the uh, beginning of the war. The weapon of the He's the author of the time travel novel, great novel, a long time until now. Who's and he's been working on the sequel to that. Um, Should be done soon. The hero he written. written with Ringo. Um, editor of Forged in Blood, an anthology set in Freehold science fiction. And hey, we got Freehold Resistance coming up in the fall. That's going to be even more great anthology stories by uh, writers who are writing in in Mike's Freehold world um in developing themes there. Most recently uh Mike had a novel with in the John Ringo and Gary Poole Black Tide Rising anthology, Voices of the Fall, which was a kick ass novella. It was really funny. Um a lot of that trenchant humor that we see on your uh like Facebook page and that doesn't always <laughs> always get into the, the books as much. Um it was in that, that story. It's really good. Um what's the name of that that story again? Something cool. Hail
3: to the king, baby. <laughs>
2: yeah. Ike right, was born in England, raised in Liverpool and Toronto, Canada, and now he lives in Indianapolis with his wife and his children. Um, so what we want to talk about today is this great article that is on the Bain.com website right now and that will, will be available in, perpetua- to it, in perpetuity at... Um, Free nonfiction 2019 in our downloadable ebook. This is called the evolution of body armor. Um, that um, it, now this drew on your. I don't know if you call yourself an armorer or a weapons dealer or what, but this this had to draw on a
3: huge amount of knowledge. I'm a bladesmith. I'm a collector. I've you know worn a certain amount. Actually, I've worn in the military. I wore the Vietnam era. Body armor we still had back in the eighties the p a s g t interceptor they were just introducing i o t v improved at our tactical vest when i uh retired, but I'm familiar with it, <clears throat> so I wore four different variations in that time frame
2: so you have some major experience with modern body armor from from your days as a soldier and um, but you also have a lot of historical knowledge about it as well. Um, can we talk about, um, I guess, start with why are shields not the ultimate answer, which is how you started the essay?
3: Well, shields are phenomenal protection. Um, you know, If you're fighting melee uh, with a sword, then a good shield is just about the best thing you can have. The problem comes if you need two hands on a weapon, all of a sudden you don't have the shield. Um, But during the Viking era and earlier, a lot of times the shield was pretty much the one piece of armor a fighting man would have. It works with a spear with an axe with a sword. And a three-foot-wide plied shield with leather over it held at arm's length stops, a little bit of training stops most of the incoming blows. But once you move to a bow, a crossbow, a musket, a rifle, you need both hands and the shield becomes uh, ineffective if you can't carry it.
2: Shield, I mean, uh, body armor came into being, I mean, incredibly long ago. According to your article, there's this thing called the Dendropanopoly, which um, is a scary-looking ensemble. What is?
3: That was um, one, of the, one of the first articulated armors. It's chest and back plate. It's got a tall neck guard that comes almost up to the chin, <clears throat> articulated shoulders, and then basically an articulated kilt. Um, it, it's And it's not as clunky as it looks. It's certainly clunkier than some other armor. But it allowed for range of motion for spear, for sword, for shield. <clears throat> you had arm and leg protection with that. And, uh, and it had a boar tooth helmet. And so there probably weren't many of those made. It would have taken a lot of man hours, a lot of material... But it would certainly be very impressive on parade and in front of an army. And I mean, whoever wore that was quite well protected for that era. They had significant coverage of everything that could be heard. Uh, but any time you put armor on, you're adding encumbrance and weight. <clears throat> and you have to balance your ability to move against your ability to withstand, to withstand blows. Yeah. I think of a, a, the car um, steering versus mass a heavier car can withstand more of an impact, but if, you, if you're a good driver with a smaller, more nimble car, you may be able to avoid the impact.
2: Well, I wanted you to to elaborate on this uh, the the trade-off of um, mobility and protection and and effectiveness. But I but maybe before that, um, what are so is the the Mycenae- Mycenaean um, piece that that you talked about is that one of the earliest. Were cuirasses, however, you say that cuirasses
3: before that, or no? There were there were cuirasses before that. Um, that was just one of the early insights and uh, forward-thinking combinations of a variety of pieces of armor as a as a mass as a unit. Uh, no, the. Uh, the Celts had hammered bronze cuirasses, and that spread to most of uh, the Mediterranean region. Um, Asia had had lamellar and scale armor for quite some time, and its I, I've made uh, mail and some other armor. Covering the torso and shoulders is relatively easy. You, you just make a piece straight down, you shape it to fit, <clears throat> and you're done. Um, adding articulated arms or flexible arms, especially armpits, is a much more complicated process. But chest and shoulders is a very easy thing to do. You're just making a basically a tube with three holes, and uh, the the Celts then had mail with doubled shoulders, extra uh, an extra yoke on it. It can be done yeah. with hammered bronze. It can be done with scales laced together or scales riveted and sewn to a, a garment underneath. And that covers the critical organs. So that was a fairly early development all across Eurasia and into parts of Africa. Yeah.
2: So were the first um, these laminated uh, partial textile, uh, partial metal or wood pieces in Asia the the first things that we see, or it, or was there something in? Europe and
3: the Mediterranean. Yeah, the Mediterranean, I couldn't find any readily available images. Um, Some of the early stuff was served both as um, recognition for people and as armor was literally something shaped like a dinner tray strapped over the chest. Round, rectangular, oblong, and uh, uh, one of the developments was basically a, a, um, what do you call it, you just hung over the shoulders <clears throat> with a place in front and back. And that you know, dramatically improves your survivability for any strength of that area. You've got a, a shield as well. <clears throat> so from there it was obvious to fasten underneath the arms, and you know then you have the cuirass. And the cuirass is a
2: complete... Metal piece, right? It's uh, it's the thing that you think of as
3: like the breast... We uh, think of it as metal, but it existed before just metal. But you yeah, have chest and back protection under the arms down to about the waist. Okay. Leather scales were used, wooden scales, even stone and bone scales. Um, <clears throat> Mail once it came along, hammered metal, layered linen, layered silk... Uh, quilted fabric, quilted leather, anything that will resist a cutting edge or a point, yeah, initially,
2: it's not just metal there I mean, I thought it was really fascinating your mention of silk, by the way, where you it it has a function of of protecting from infection. what was it exactly that?
3: Um, Where silk was available, um, and it's worked with other other fabrics as well, but silk is very strong. uh, So the silk is resistant to cutting, it's resistant to a stab, and if there is a stab, the silk can be, will drag into the wound a certain distance before it starts to tear or cut. So you may get a penetrative wound, but the chip was encapsulated in the fabric and therefore, if it's if it's an arrow, the tip that's stuck, it can more easily be drawn. And if it's a spear tip, it's less likely to have caused infection or sword tip because it's been encapsulated. So you'll still have a ugly wound, but it will not get as easily infected.
2: It's just like a silk-lined <laughs> ugly wound when you pulled the thing out, huh? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell us about this um this the trade off the math um, that you
3: that some of the that you put in the article about um... yeah, so it's easy to calculate individually what your protection is uh if you cover a certain percentage of your torso head and and groin, then you're wearing that the entire time you're engaged, and you can approximately calculate how resistant it is to stabs, thrusts, cuts, and you can come up with a good percentage improvement on your protection, um, you know, typically 50 to 70 yeah, percent. If, if it stops one stab, that's double your chances of surviving until the you know, second stab comes along. Um, as far as the weight and encumbrance, that's more of a statistical thing that you have to analyze afterward, and that's, that parts a relatively later development, although any observant individual, you could go, well, I almost got shanked because I couldn't move fast enough, so I need something a little lighter, even if it's not as uh, good a protection.
2: So what was the next development after we got it? Well, for, we should probably talk about helmets also, which came along.
3: Yeah, helmets of, um, well, in any kind of head wrapping will reduce an impact blow, and then it's not far from there to either boiled leather was fairly common or... Um, sections of horn or tusk, and then, you know, reinforced metal bands, and then eventually all metal for a helmet. Um, crown of the head, back of the neck, sides of the jaw, sometimes a nasal piece to protect against a, a lateral blow. It also depends on the fighting style you're facing. <clears throat> and these came and went. Um, you know, simple bowl or conical helmets come and go, across 3,000 years. Um, The more elaborate ones with neck and side protection will come and go a little later, and then eventually you get ones that can be strapped on and provide significant protection. But in the modern era, we went back first just the steel helmet, and now it's a carbon fiber or other composite helmet with ballistic eye protection, since we can make see-through armor of various uh strengths so it they it, it all varies on the circumstances when
2: chest and shoulder protection came in, maybe um groin area um and the helmet that was what we think of sort of as the modern or not the modern but what we recognize from from our medieval
3: as body armor perhaps
2: Roman times greeks, bronze, plates,
3: and... Upper arm protection was less of an issue. On the shield side, uh, there there might be shoulder protection down to about the middle of the upper arm. Um, Below that, there were often guards on the arms, band braces. And uh, making an elbow is a much more sophisticated forging process. But basically, modified tubes or cones that you can strap over your limbs is fairly straightforward. Uh, Soft padding on the joints probably existed, but making anything more elaborate is very individualized and takes quite a bit of work. So what I know from at least a 1,000 years ago and probably longer, it was not uncommon to have... Basically, iron bars strapped to um, either padding or leather, with articulated hinges at the uh, at the elbows, basically like chain. And this is actually surprisingly effective because it's you've got a solid bar along the outside of your arm. That's the area most likely to be struck. Anything striking that the blow is going to be stopped. Yeah, and because it's that's that's like a cage on your arm sort of or just one bar. It's just just one bar along the outside with a joint at the elbow and then along the upper arm. And just it's yeah. a bar it can be heavier than the sheet metal you'd have. But of course it only covers that one strip. But since that's where most blows are likely to impact,
0: <clears throat>
3: it's actually quite significant protection and relatively simple to make. A new, another
2: development that came along, and this is really interesting t- to me because I, I really wasn't aware that Romans had mail. Um, I just kind of picture it as a medieval thing. Um, the Celts developed it first, right? And how did
3: it we think come about? We and think you, the Celts developed you talk it. a lot about it. So the very earlier stuff, you would have had to hammer the wire out of a piece of metal. Uh, that was very laborious. Uh, they developed tools for drawing wire. <clears throat> a series of mandrels, smaller and smaller, until you get continuous, uh, consistent gauge of wire. Um, repairs or some of the cheaper stuff, the rings are just closed and left butted together, but ideally you want to overlap them slightly, hammer them flat, drive a wedge in, and mm-hmm. rivet the dome. It, it takes some practice to do, I've done it, and um, there's people who've done entire uh suits out of it and I I did a, a few dozen rings and decided I understood the process and didn't really have any interest in doing, you know, fifty thousand more of them. <clears throat> At that point it's uh that's what apprentices are for. Uh, so it's it's labor intensive yeah. and time intensive and it does use a lot of metal, but it's very flexible. It's quite strong. If you put um riveted or welded mail over padding it will stop most melee weapons.
2: Straight-on sword thrust can be stopped
3: by mail. It uh, depends on the circumstances. The, the mail is strong enough to resist the sp- uh, splitting of the rings to a point. You've got soft padding behind it, which is going to deflect. So it's you know it's like trying to punch a hole in something that's you know it, it's moving. It's 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 not firmly uh, placed. Mm-hmm. Sort of like trying to hang up a. Um, hang up a piece of leather and jab a hole in it with a sharp knife. It's much easier when you can stretch it out and uh, apply pressure directly to a single point. Simple physics. And then, of course, the person behind is going to be moving and deflecting as well, if they have any kind of warning of the attack coming.
2: Now, you have a picture, uh, an image of a a reenactor in Roman mail. Um, Mm -hmm. Did it evolved during the, into the Middle
3: Ages, or was it essentially the same? Or, or? Uh, The fabrication basically stayed the same. Um, I, I believe the Romans used um, frequently punched rings for every other row. They were just punched out of a sheet, and then the ultimate rings were butted. So that wasn't quite as strong as having everything riveted, but it was a heck of a lot faster to produce. And, of course, they could buy individual armor, so some of them probably did buy you know, stuff that was riveted. What is riveted mean? You you overlap the ends, punch a small hole, and the the best technique is to put a small wedge of metal through and then dome hammer over the pointed end, so the ring is riveted closed. And each one's linked to four others around it, so if they're all riveted um, to themselves and linked to each other. Uh, it makes a fairly substantial uh, amount of uh, both mass and strength to get through. So this is
2: um, riveted mail is is like the mithril of mail armor. It's it's supple and, and it feels good
3: to wear, and yes. yet it's incredibly strong. And it continued in common use, depending on where you are in the world, through the 1930s. It was still in use in parts of the Middle East and. Persia and India up until less than a century ago. And it's been used since then for shark suits, for butcher gloves, flexible metal mesh.
2: It's crazy. It's a technology that that keeps giving to protect us. Uh,
3: We we know that it existed in the uh, the Viking era. Um, There's documentation of several people wearing it <clears throat> they found uh, residual pieces including a couple they found in Greenland that had been turned into um, toys and then left behind and the locals were the Greenlanders were using them but we don't have much in the way of hard physical evidence in most of the, uh, the Viking world so it existed but it was not common was, you know, movies would have you believe everyone ran around in mail but you're talking several head of cattle uh, in cost for the materials and labor. It wasn't something you would have if you were not a dedicated professional warrior.
2: Even the, um, even the uh, normal warriors who had leather armor, um, that's still pretty expensive stuff to make. I mean, it costs you a cow, right? It's
3: Yeah. Leather actually, leather actually wasn't as common as it's portrayed because yes, you, you have to sacrifice a cow for, per armor and it has to be a bull and it has to be I, I think it's two or three years but I'm not sure which is why I didn't specify in the article <coughs> so that's a draft animal you can't use uh, you're not getting the best meat out of it and you've sacrificed the entire animal for the purpose of tanning its hide and turning it into armor and of course when that armor gets cut you have to replace whole pieces there's no you know, male you can replace rings um, quilted embazon, you can stitch additional pieces over it. You don't really have that option with hardened leather. So people did wear it, and certainly if you had it lying around, you'd wrap it over yourself as additional protection if you didn't have anything better. But if you're outfitting a large number of men, iron was not as cost-effective and stronger in the way to go.
2: So you could... Um, so you, There's probably a lot of Armies that were mostly iron clad, and there weren't a bunch of leather clad brigandine
3: armor guys running around. Well, brigandine is just a lightweight leather or fabric with metal inside it. That's much easier to make than dedicated leather armor. Oh, okay. okay. So you're you're wearing the leather or the fabric is basically clothing for the armor. Okay.
2: So brigandine is. The, by definition what the common guys were wearing
3: it was it was very common for professional soldiers in that time frame <clears throat> yeah now depending on where you're levying your troops from they might just show up with quilting you know a spear and shield uh, as time went on armies got more dedicated more professional and better equipped
2: well let's take a step back for a moment the the Roman articulated armor, the segmented armor, is, is it's kind of how I think of Romans. Is that like late empire, or is that?
3: That
2: was late empire, yes.
3: Um, there's dispute over whether it was commonly issued or if it was primarily to auxiliaries. It seems to be the the visual evidence we have seems to suggest it was largely the auxiliaries who had that. <clears throat> but we're not positive either way. But, uh, yeah, it's relatively easy to make. It's a series of bands that fit around the torso and a series of bands that fit over both shoulders, and then it's all riveted together with straps and buckles. And it uh, folds down. You can disassemble it and collapse it down to fit easily inside a backpack or basket. Like a camping cup or something like that? A little bigger than that, but, yeah. You know, for transport, when you're marching and not fighting... There's no reason to be wearing it. If you're infantry in that era, <clears throat> everything you're going to use, you're going to have to carry. So when you're not wearing the armor, you're going to have to carry it. It's actually, with a lot of stuff, it's easier to wear than to try and carry it. You know, They did have wagons. They did have draft animals. but At the yeah. end of the day, they were carrying a lot of their own stuff, stuff that folds down and drops into a backpack, minimizes heat, minimizes uh, wear and abrasion, Minimizes wear of the straps and buckles, and means you still have it with you. Yeah.
2: Well, let's talk about speaking of weight. Let's talk about the the sort of golden age of the medieval uh, knight kind of uh, suit of armor. Um, And and you talk about the weight of that, and the various. You have three basic kinds
3: that you detail in the article. Yeah, I showed um, stuff you'd use for fighting, and of course this was all handmade, um, bespoke, and you know, only the wealthy had that. And then there's parade armor, which is the same thing with lots of chasing and inlay and foil and, and um, oxidizing and colors and everything else. <clears throat> and then jousting armor is basically sporting equipment. In, in between wars, a lot of these... One of the... It, it was a strictly fluffy entertainment movie um it was um i can't remember what it was called uh about uh jousting and but it, it did cover accurately that a lot of these guys made their money going from joust to joust when there wasn't a war uh, the knights Tale. yeah knight's tale yes that's it <clears throat> yeah if you're a professional warrior and there isn't a war going on what do you do well you you get some practice in and hopefully get paid for it uh, so, what about the weight of this stuff?
2: I mean, uh, there's, you know, there's the the
3: myth that you fall down, you can't get up, right? Right. No, it's actually relatively light uh, because it was all articulated and pieced together. Um, the weight was distributed over the entire body. And you're carrying a little more weight on your. You're still wearing a heavy coat. You're carrying a bit more weight on your arms, a bit more weight on your shoulders. You can tighten in the belt. You know, you're you're wearing it like clothing rather than an external item. <clears throat> so, you know, 40 to 50 pounds dispersed like that really isn't that bad bit of practice a bit of moving around. And it's, uh, it's well distributed. Um, the jousting armor was heavier because it was designed to make sure you stayed alive when somebody was, you know, charging at you full on repeatedly. <clears throat> and the parade armor they weren't going to wear that much anyway, so some of it actually was fully functional armor, just very elaborate, but some of it was, you know, they didn't care about the way they wanted better show.
2: Why did this, why did this come about? Was it because the longbow came about, or, or
3: arrows? Uh... Um, the bow had a lot of effect on lightly armed troops, um, and of course on horses that aren't armored. You stick a few dozen arrows into a horse, and they really don't care for that a whole lot. Um, and arrows with a what's called a bodkin point is a long forged chisel, and then for penetrating mail, they made them two, three inches long. Uh, and you know some of the some of the battles of the Hundred Years' War, um, Agincourt and Cressy, uh, were in the first few minutes, a million arrows were launched. So even if your armor is you know, eighty, ninety percent effective. If a hundred or more arrows hit you, some of them are going to find gaps in the armor. Some of them are going to hit between the rings of mail just right for that tip to penetrate through the padding. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely guaranteed that sooner or later you get overwhelmed. <clears throat> um, but then you know, the common levy troops were just wearing quilting. At that point, they would have still had a likely had a shield, but you know you, you everything gets overwhelmed with sufficient mass and Then when gunpowder came along, the early weapons were not very efficient they were large, started as basically artillery and mass weapons. But as it evolved with, with musketry, they reached the point where this steel this lead ball is going to punch through the steel at a certain range. <clears throat>
2: Well, this is where, so the firearms, yeah, firearms change things considerably, um, which is, I mean, you know, completely for a while, up sort of until our age where things are, or defenses are catching up,
3: right? Right. Yeah, I've, I've shot either originals or repros of pretty much every firearm from then forward. <clears throat> the early ones are not very efficient um you know they're certainly effective on mass against a uh mass of lightly armored troops. you know the artillery became effective for breaching walls. But when you got to volleys of matchlock muskets at that point, <clears throat> you're reaching a uh, the stage where armor was really not as effective, but there were still plenty of lances. Swords, pole arms on the field to protect against. Yeah, they, you know, slowly those got. And,
2: and you said artillery. I mean, a, uh, a cavalry officers wore cuirasses into the Napoleonic War.
3: hmm And in some areas, all the way up through World War One. You know, if you're planning on getting in close enough to slash somebody with a sword, then the steel was still valid protection. But once you got to uh, fairly fast-loading uh, rifles in the 1800s, and then eventually to breech-loading and repeating rifles, the the armor that they'd had was all useless. It would do you. It'd be useful to you if you got close enough to engage <laughs> hand to hand. But before then, you weren't going to be stopping any bullets. Yeah. There were some custom pieces in the Civil War, and there was a limited amount in World War I. I I provided images of those ones.
2: Yeah, that was – what the heck were they using in in the Civil War?
3: Um, Some mail, some heavy plates of steel backed up by leather. Uh, That was uh, probably closer to um, to, um, um, brigandine for the Civil War. Now, that World War One shield, the like, picture of the German machine gunners, looks a little bit like the Dendra stuff. <clears throat> and again, heavy steel plate, because it's going to stop a bullet. Um, you know, a bullet from World War One era is capable of punching at close range through the side of a railroad track. You, you've got to have some pretty hefty steel to stop, uh, stop that coming in. You know, now, maybe a couple hundred yards, it's, you know, slowed a bit. And less effective.
2: But. And during World War I, helmets became something for protection from above, or shrapnel.
3: Right, yeah. Well, if there's shells going off, there's debris raining out of the sky, and you don't want to be pelted in the head with it. <clears throat> so the helmet became the critical piece of armor, <clears throat> because whether or not you got shot at, it was very likely you were going to get debris raining on top of you, little splinters of metal Whizzing through the air, uh, clouds of dirt, rocks, concrete, and of course, if you're having to go into trenches or into buildings, there's always a risk of banging your head on something. And you want to keep your brains—you know—they work better inside the skull. Mm-hmm.
2: And and then throughout the 20th century, basically, the flak jacket, the the, the torso armor, slowly made a comeback. Beginning with what bomber pilots
3: um, yes, there was a big influx World war two they uh, looked at the wounds the pilots were getting and you know, realized it, it wouldn 't take a lot of armor to stop a lot of that and re- drastically reduce uh, the casualties, <clears throat> so those were um, ceramic and plastic plates inside nylon. <clears throat> Yeah, in a vest. Um, Japanese fighter pilots had some of them. Um, the U.S. bomber pilots, and it was the British who developed one aspect of it, had quite a bit. Um, the European pilot fighter pilots didn't really have room in the cockpit to wear a whole lot. So it was largely the bomber crews. And of course, the bomber crews were taking a lot more flack, <clears throat> you know, going in and coming back out. Um, That uh, continued to uh, career for helicopter pilots doing reconnaissance and observation and evacuating casualties.
2: So what was this stuff made out of, and how did it evolve? That
3: was uh, multiple layers of nylon, much like the uh, Greeks had used multiple layers of linen. A similar effect, each layer slows the incoming fragment down a bit. And then you back it up with a fiberglass plate which, uh, you know, once it's slow enough, that will stop it and disperse the impact over an area of the body to make it more of a much more dispersed and much less of a penetration.
2: So this, basically, Vietnam-era stuff continued into the 80s
3: until when? When did... Uh, We were still issuing not much, but we um, my. Uh, Air Force Engineer Unit still had some of the Vietnam era nylon body armor in the late 1980s. We were we were slow. Of course, the Air Force is at the end of the chain on a lot of that stuff. You know, the, the you know the front line Army Infantry units get it first, which is as it should be, uh, and then and then their immediate support, and then it propagates through. So uh, the the Vietnam stuff was ballistic nylon, which is only proof against uh, fragments. It has no direct ballistic protection. Uh, I've got the, um, the PASG T-Armor from the 80s, uh, which replaced that, and that the Kevlar helmet went along with that, and this is the Kevlar vest that goes with it. And that actually will stop a lot of pistol bullets. It's not officially rated to do so, but tests show that it will stop. Low-velocity 9mm. It'll stop uh, 45 sometimes. It'll stop 22s. Uh, Mid range power uh, projectiles. And there's still some of that an issue, um, you know, because it's it's very good flak armor. So it's still used aboard ship. It's still used by a lot of our allies. It's like 60 countries still use that exact model. Is
2: Was Kevlar, I mean, it's. it's... Is it the game changer that I mean? It's it's stronger than steel and lighter, right?
3: Right. Yes. That was that was the significant change in uh, modern um, fabrics. In that uh, it's very strong. It's quite light. It's flexible enough that you don't need to articulate anything. <clears throat> it's uh, it's comfortable enough depending on the weather. Hey, you know, when I was out in the field at Ten below, I wasn't even aware I was wearing it with the parka and everything else. Uh, You start doing runway repair practice on the Gulf Coast of Florida in May in the hot sun in chemical warfare gear with uh, body armor on top of it. At that point, it starts getting pretty obnoxious. But uh, the weight's well distributed. It's something that's basically from the time we developed specifically torso armor, um, and some of the accessories to the present, about 30 to 35 pounds is what people will wear. If it's too much heavier, they'll they'll get rid of it. It's slowing them down. If it's lighter than that, they're willing to put up to that much weight on to maximize their protection. So throughout history, it's been, you know, the, the typical armor has been in the range of 30 to 35 pounds. And it's just gotten better and better at stopping the better and better threats.
2: So what is the state-of-the-art right now, modern armor, body armor?
3: So th- there's three uh, primary options right now, and they're all worn with what they now call a plate carrier, which is the soft armor. Uh, and modern soft armor is pretty much proof against any commercial pistol loading. You, know, you can obviously hot load a three fifty seven and punch holes in it, but um, pretty much anything commercial will be stopped by the soft armor. <clears throat> and then you wear plates, uh, you always want the chest plate if, if there's going to be an issue. I would say the back plate is second, and then the side plates against the uh, under the ribs would be third. And there's um, the the military plates are ceramic layers. The uh, the current stuff is rated to stop one armor-piercing round of 30 up 6 has a 60% probability of stopping a second, and in tests it seems to. Seems to typically stop about six to eight rounds of standard 308 ball. You now, being able to survive six to eight hits to your chest, you know, it is a very significant uh, in, uh, defense. And of course, we, you know, we have modern uh, medicine, so your survivability for other hits is dramatically improved. But the, the chest plate goes from just below the collarbone to just about the navel, just above the navel. So, it protects your heart, liver lungs, kidneys from the front, uh inferior vena cava, aorta, everything that would cause you to die very quickly has considerable protection um there's also the for, since it was uh, a lot of the retailers didn't want to sell to civilians, even though there's no federal law against civilians having armor um, there's a company that came out with a steel plate now the steel plate's heavier but it has the advantage of uh, not, you know, the fragmenting upon impact. So as long as the rounds are dispersed, it can take several more hits. But your trade-off there is a couple pounds in weight, which adds up when it's, you know, every plate you're wearing. And then the the new stuff is actually a polyethylene plastic, which will stop uh, rifle bullets. Um, it's not quite as resistant to armor-piercing bullets. It doesn't shatter if you drop it on the ground, which is a big plus, because the ceramic plates are kind of radical. But it does degrade in sunlight or heat, so if you leave it in front of your car for weeks on end, you're losing some uh, effectiveness.
2: So the most advanced is beyond uh, Sonen, uh, uh Ceramic plates and now to this this
3: kind of super advanced polymer plastic. it's it's not as yeah you know, it's getting there it's uh you know it's got some advantages some disadvantages, but shortly that will probably some variation of that will surpass the ceramic it's also a lot lighter that's what I've
2: always wondered about with uh with with modern uh, body armor is how does this force dissipation work and and what happens to the body underneath um there's significant padding you have to wear under it or
3: what? Well the the, the soft vest is some padding and the, the impact is dispersed over the plate. There's a misconception that bullets knock people back. That that doesn't actually happen. Um the the bullet isn't hitting the target any harder than the recoil is hitting your shoulder. <clears throat> so if you disperse that over you know a, a plate that's eleven inches by fourteen for me, extra large. Um it's negligible. There's there's plenty of video evidence of people being hit and just continuing to move. Uh, uh, obviously aware they've been hit, but not significantly affected by it.
2: So it's really, I mean, the, just the fact that it pierces flesh and gets inside you and tears you up—that the bullet
3: does its bad work. Right. Yeah. In fact, the um, the North Hollywood shootout in the '90s was that. Um, These guys fabricated Kevlar clothing head-to-toe, the police had to hunt down a gun store and get some rifles because these guys are being hit with pistol rounds and just sort of shaking them off and shooting back and continuing to go. They weren't really bothered, and that was soft armor and pistols.
2: So speculate about armor of the future,
3: which is how you end the article. Um, Right. So, yeah, we're reaching a point where you know, for that same 30 to 35 pounds, you'll be able to stop any normal rifle or pistol threat. And that's going to be another significant game changer because then you're limited in how big a weapon you can carry and how powerful a bullet you can carry because they tend to be bigger. That reduces the combat loadout that someone can carry. You know, you'd much rather have you, – you, it doesn't matter what you you how, how powerful the ammo you ran out of is. Once you're out of ammo, that's uh, that's it. Um, yeah, so the you know the various options become either uh, small projectiles with shaped charges, so they can punch through armor. Um, uh, but there's a there's a minimum size you need for that, given our current explosive technology. Uh, they make more powerful explosives, but they tend to be sensitive to impact, which is not a good thing when you're running around the battlefield. Um, it's gonna be relatively stable until such time as it hits the target you want it to hit. Um, you can uh go with um just larger projectile oh sorry, larger explosive weapons overall. <clears throat> um you can I I briefly touched on concepts like rail guns <clears throat> and other ways of accelerating projectiles. Uh, the issue is that any projectile in the atmosphere uh, is slowed by that atmosphere, and stuff the size of rifle bullets tends to lose velocity very quickly. There there are several um, rounds in the 5 to 6 millimeter range that come out of the muzzle at extreme velocity. We're talking, you know, 4,000 feet a second. But by the time they get to 100 yards, they're doing the same velocity as the stuff that came out at 2,500 feet per second. <clears throat> They're, they're just running through atmospheric frictional limits, so that would reduce the range of engagements. Although most engagements, most combat engagements, tend to be under a hundred yards anyway. So, so there's a whole metric that will have to be calculated there on the effectiveness of ammunition. You know, how close you have to be. Um, these days, more and more casualties are caused by radios and aircraft and uh, artillery. And that will probably continue. <clears throat> but it does mean that the, the small arms that we currently have become less and less effective. Assuming of course your enemy's wearing armor. If your enemy can't afford armor because they, they're you know, peasants up in caves, you know, that's less of an issue. <clears throat> yeah.
2: And you touch on in one paragraph, uh, yeah, you touch on lasers and, uh, you say that la- even um, energy weapons are not a magic counter to armor,
3: you say. Right. I know a little bit about lasers and other energy weapons. Um, I mean, the big issue is you're trying to get a, the best efficiency possible because whatever energy you haven't put into the beam is waste heat. And you know, we're looking 15%, 20% efficiency, which means you've got 80% waste heat. So even if you have a power pack and can make a um, – some way of creating a laser small enough to be hand-carried, there's a huge amount of waste heat that is a problem for whoever's carrying the weapon. <clears throat> uh, I like what uh, you mentioned before we started, you mentioned David Drake, a you know, phenomenal writer, and he had a brilliant hypothetical solution in, in the Hammer Slammers universe with uh, what they call power guns. The, it's a little cartridge that upon being activated releases energy in a linear beam. <clears throat> and if we can figure out how to do that, then that gives us a effective energy weapon <clears throat> usable for the line of sight. Of course we don't know how to do that yet. Um, but then at that point you know armor becomes ablative. You know, what does it take to stop this beam from going through to boil off your armor as vapor and disperse the uh the integrity of the beam. And you know, any armor would do that, but obviously they would optimize the armor for that kind of threat. Uh, the issue would become, are you still facing bullets as well? Because, you know, that complicates the matter. Yeah. Well,
2: what uh, what do your guys in
3: Ripple Creek wear? Uh, the Ripple Creek universe, that's, that's, that's um, Freehold universe, but it's before the, uh, the Freehold main line. It's, um, and they're wearing, yeah, basically the 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 futuristic uh polymer armor they're wearing it. it's lightweight it's one under their clothing it will stop most of the type of blitz they're going to face while they're doing executive protection and uh one one thing i didn't really mention is the uh i i, I did briefly mention it the um uh, materials with non-newtonian uh characteristics whereby you hit them and the entire surface goes stiff momentarily <clears throat> Uh, Larry Niven used that in the known space universe. Um, you can demonstrate this with uh, water. If you slap the surface of water, you get resistance. If you just push your hand in, you get a lot less. And there's other uh, there's demonstrations. I, I think it was, was it starch? They built a swimming pool full of starch and water, and people can run across the surface. And if they stop, they'll sink. <clears throat> So there there are experimental fabrics uh, and other textiles that have that same ability. Something hits them hard, they momentarily stiffen up and act as armor, but then they go back to being flexible. yeah, and the, I mean those are
2: things that are that are real now
3: that are are being looked at and developed, yeah. So that's um, yeah, that's the ripple Creek armor, but they're they're executive protection. They're not combat troops.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, what about force fields? And uh, you don't get into that, but you
3: leave it to others. The physics of force fields to get into that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. They've been used in science fiction a lot, and you know, force fields do exist. Um, I'm sure they will get more effective, controllable, and efficient. But I, I don't have any credentials whatsoever to comment on those. <clears throat> so, yeah. But that would be interesting, although you know from what little i do know re- you know restraining a a magnetic atmosphere is a lot easier than trying to restrain a impact from a projectile mm-hmm.
2: well that's a uh, it's the article is um it's a wonderful tour through uh History, of body armor, with some cool st- stuff about the present and a little speculation on the future, um, and that is at dot Com right now. Uh, what are you? What else are you working on? What have you been working on recently, Michael? I'm trying to
3: wrap up the uh, next freehold anthology, which is the rebels and resistance during the war. <clears throat> um, there's a whole bunch of technical experts in this. I, I went through the list. We've got three academy graduates, like seven combat veterans, two or three other veterans, a neuroscientist, um, an IT security uh, forensics expert, um, a pilot, several professional shooters, <laughs> I say, uh, a couple of intelligence officers, a former SEAL. If you were going to hold a uh, resistance against an invader, this is the group you would actually put together. Um, I, I'm very excited that the stories have been coming in. And a lot of them cross-reference each other or overlap. So it's basically, you can read the stories individually, and they're all good stories.
2: Yeah, and they can write. They're experts who can write.
3: Yeah, and you, you can read the linear flow of how this uh uh, re- resistance went through the freehold uh, universe. It starts off, you know, well, we got we to do something, but what are we going to do? And by the end of it, they've got a very sophisticated uh, system. They've got intelligence, they've got communications, they've got standardized equipment, and they're ready to go toe to toe with the invaders and even proactively go after them. I'd alluded to it in previous works, and you know, this allowed me to bring in people to flesh out different points of view of how this would actually happen. Yeah. And uh, yeah. then I'm, I'm trying to finish up the second time travel novel, hopefully in the next couple of months.
2: What's that title on that one? Do we have that? You have it, I think.
3: The problem I'm having is that I, the, the title for the first one was so fantastic, I can't come up with anything comparable for the second one, so I thought really... A long time until now it's cool it was about you know, uh, i came up with that title i was like oh that is such a great title <clears throat> well, I, I don't know what i'll do about to that uh,
2: well it'll come to you so cool cool that's, that's really looking forward to that as well um the resistance um anthology it's the resistance is the beginning of this world you've created, that's semi semi-libertarian—you don't necessarily; it's not completely libertarian. And the resist—who they are resisting—is is the human empire created by the UN. Is that correct?
3: Yes. Yeah, the military gets basically large chunks of the military are taken out on mass, and um, there's an entire star system. But bureaucrats, being bureaucrats, they're focused on controlling the planet. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, occupying an enemy state, as, you know, we can see from history, is a very, very complicated, expensive process. <clears throat> and, you know, when when they resist, it becomes harder. And when they have the technical means of resisting at your own level, it becomes a nightmare. You know, you know when, when you've got, uh, you know, every city... In this universe has hundreds of thousands of people with better than our modern phones walking around taking photos, and all that data is being shared into an intelligence network that has sufficient computer power <coughs> to very quickly uh coordinate and predict what the enemy forces are doing and know where to place obstacles uh their you know their database they have to have their own. Uh, database security because there are hackers trying to steal everything from uh, you know, credit card numbers, personal contact information, you know, harass their families, change their rank while they're out on a, a mission. Yeah. So there, there's both um, there's a lot of psyops, there's a lot of technical operations, there's a lot of combat. But, uh, you know, it always comes down to never fight the enemy on his chosen ground. Find some ways to your advantage and try and force him to fight there. You know, sap his morale and, uh, you know, force him to comply. A handbook,
2: uh, of stories that perhaps will be useful in the future.
3: So, um, yeah, given some of the, um, the authors, I'm hoping it will actually get read by, uh, Elements of the military. We've been lucky in that the people we fought recently did not have huge technical bases from which to operate. Mm -hmm. But we still had some stuff get... um, Armor get defeated, drones get hacked. Never assume your enemy is stupid because he's poor or a little behind the curve. They can catch up very quickly. And if they're technically equal to you... Uh, It it very quickly comes down to who can throw the most money at it. And if they don't need to throw money at it because you've already destroyed their economy, if if all they they need is the manpower, uh, you're you're very quickly spending resources you don't have on property you don't control. And your tanks run out of gas. Mm Mm-hmm. Or their GPS gets hacked and they wind up in the wrong location. Yeah, where there's the minds waiting for them. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um look forward to to
2: that and to the time travel book. Um it, this, the article out right now is The Evolution of Body Armor by Michael Z. Williamson. It's at Bain.com and will be available in perpetuity at um free nonfiction twenty nineteen, the uh ebook anthology, which can also be found at Bain.com in the Bain ebooks uh, retail store. Uh Mike, thank you so much for talking uh, with us about this fascinating subject that you know so much about. Thank you. It was uh,
3: fun to write, and I hope your uh, cold gets better. Thanks.
1: Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of The Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Roan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword.
0: Chapter 21 Thwack! Excellent, Ashok told Jagdish. You almost hit me. Good work. The Rizalda stumbled away, one hand pressed to his bruised ribs. He caught himself on the prison wall and held himself there, trying to catch his breath. If they'd been using real blades, Jagdish would be dead, and they both knew it. That was good, he gasped. Well, better. Ashok respected Jagdish. Ratul had taught them There were two types who could become great swordsmen, tigers and hounds. Tigers were naturally gifted, fast, graceful, and everything came easily to them. But tigers were proud, so were resistant to learning. Hounds were not born lucky, but they simply would not quit, and they just kept grunting along until the job was done. Jagdish was a hound. It was too bad Vidal hadn't obligated him because he would have made a good protector. Jagdish's skills had improved greatly over the last few months they'd been training together, and if he'd done this well during their knife fight, Ashok might have gotten injured. Jagdish pushed himself off the wall, lifted his shirt and grimaced at the spreading bruise. Damn, that hurts! My swordmaster told me it has to hurt or you can't learn. Ratul may have lost his mind and descended into the madness of religious fervour, but he had been an excellent teacher before that, among the best there had ever been. A balance must be struck between severe injury, which makes you unable to train further, and the tag-and-slap games those who play at combat mistake for training. So, as my master used to ask... Is it squirting blood or is a bone sticking out? No. Then we can continue. If it wasn't for this bum leg, I could take you, Jagdish lied. They both knew his leg was completely healed at this point. And besides, Ashok routinely defeated everyone. So it wasn't like Jagdish needed an excuse. At this rate, by the time I'm ready to retire and you're about to die of old age, I'll be ready to duel you. Keep winding your little clock, but I don't think time will save you. The judges may move like snails, but they're not that slow. It had been fall when he'd faced Bidea, and winter was just starting. He'd been imprisoned here for over a year now. Even by capital standards, he must have given the judges something interesting to argue about. Justice isn't swift, but it is, by definition, correct. My corpse will be decorating the Inquisitor's Dome long before either of us can grow old. Jagdish picked his wooden sword out of the dirt. Then I'd better work harder. A wise answer. How in the ocean's name are you this good? I've trained my whole life. Ashok shrugged. Fighting had always come easily to him. Strike your opponent while avoiding their strikes. Hit them before they hit you. If they put something in your way, move it, then hit them. They're easier to hit if you knock them down first. There is no showmanship, no flash, only hitting and not being hit. Don't make it complicated. Yes, yes, I got the fundamental philosophy the first hundred times you said it, but I was the best in my class from the house with the greatest warrior tradition in Locke. And this is ridiculous. All of the legends about protectors are true. Warriors train to fight other warriors. Protectors fight everything. That was only part of it, but he'd made a solemn vow to never speak of the heart of the mountain. The truth of it was, ever since touching the heart, the movements of regular fighters seemed sluggish in comparison. It wasn't fair, but anyone who got into fair fights could expect to lose half the time. It's like you know what I'm going to do before I do it, every single time. I don't have to have Angruvadal in my hand to feel its influence. Every fight it has ever experienced, I've experienced. It makes you predictable. Then perhaps I should be unpredictable. Jagdish must have picked up a handful of dirt when he'd retrieved his sword because he threw it at Ashok's eyes. With Angruvadal helping, he could pick out every grain of sand suspended in the air. Borrowed lifetimes of experience enabled him to respond without thought. Ashok simply closed his eyes and felt the stinging bits bounce off his skin as he swayed to the side he felt the wooden sword pass through the ragged remains of his shirt as he calculated all the angles and the most efficient way to respond to Jagdish's lunge. Time returned to normal and Ashok was already turning, bringing his own blunt practice blade up, and he struck Jagdish in the armpit with a push cut that was hard enough to break skin and toss the young warrior on his back. Jagdish landed hard and swearing, The guards watching along the wall had a good laugh at their commander's misfortune. He was enough of a man to let them watch and they'd gained respect for their leader seeing him try to beat the unbeatable without fail every single day. So the laughter was all in good fun. Soldiers fought harder when they knew their leader had guts. Are you all right down there, sir? Get back to work, Jagdish shouted at them. Come on, Rizalda, you think in a thousand years nobody ever thought to throw sand in a bearer's eyes? Ashok tapped two fingers to the side of his head. I've got the memories of someone who fought a duel where both combatants stood on the back of an elephant in here. Jagdish groaned as he sat up. There was a dark spot of blood showing through the side of his shirt. I'll have what fetch us some elephants for tomorrow then? That'll give the men a good show. Ashok extended one hand to help him up. It was an unconscious movement, something an equal would do for a friend. Ashok realized too late that he'd just broken the law, but the warrior didn't seem to notice and he took Ashok's hand anyway. Jagdish might have hesitated to accept the help before, but when you fight against a man every single day, it became easy to forget the caste of their birth. Ashok hauled him to his feet. Jagdish leaned his practice sword against the stone wall. I'm John. Calling it a day already. I don't think I have a choice. He pointed at the highest guard tower, where one of the men was waving a flag. Red for potential danger, green was for regular business, and blue was for high starters' visitors. This flag was blue. They must be flying heraldry. Someone important is coming to visit. Damn it, I wasn't told of any inspections. Perhaps it's a judge, finally come to condemn me, Ashok said hopefully. Don't say that, Jagdish said as he picked up a towel and wiped the sweat from his face. I'd miss our practice sessions. Don't worry, Rizalda. After they execute me, you could still try to become Mangruvadal's bearer jagdish paused the idea of becoming a house's bearer wasn't something any honorable warrior took lightly do you truly believe i'm worthy he asked earnestly ashok thought that over it was a curious thing for an honest whole man to ask a vile criminal about worthiness i only know of one man who may be more deserving but it is Angruvadal's decision to make No one can truly understand how black steel thinks However, I'll put in a word with my sword And ask it not to mangle you too badly If it finds you unworthy Jagdish paused, thoughtful Does that work? I don't know There's only one way to find out But I won't be around to see if it cuts your hands off or not
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the Southern Cross and Taurus, Carina, and that most beautiful of constellations, the Emu. Plus, thanks, praise, and a protective carapace of plaudits for Michael Z. Williamson, author of great nonfiction piece, The Evolution of Body Armor. Please join us next time here at The Hammering Heart, science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.